in writing to St. Paul, uh, to the Romans, St. Paul, in Romans chapter 15, says something. He said, whatever things were written before time were written for our instructions. This morning from Revelation chapter 2, we're going to go back in time. But we're going to go back in time in order that we might understand something of the present. Jesus spoke to the church then, to the church at Pergamos, or Pergamum as some translations have it. And what he said to them then, he says to us now, because the churches in the book of Revelation are churches that are microcosm of, of the churches of all times. So that in every, every generation we find this kind of setting as we will find in Pergamos. The things that happened then are happening now. And what we want to know is, to, is how do we respond to them? How, how do we relate to what is happening? Can this ancient book respond to things that are happening in modern times? And the question is asked and is easily answered. Yes, because human problems have not changed. They remain the same. And this book was written to deal with human problems, with the church's problems. And we will see how the text answers that this morning. It is a very simple text. But I want to remind you that this is a well that is deeper than we want to think even though it seems almost shallow at the beginning, because all I have to read to you is Revelation chapter two, uh, chapter 12 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. I'll repeat it. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon, write. The angel, the word there is to the messenger. Several theologians believe that that word angel simply means the pastor, the messenger. That's what the word means. Who was serving the church in Pergamon, which is today modern Turkey. He is writing to them. Someone has, said, has something to say to the church in Pergamum. Who is this one? This one holds the sharp two-edged sword. He has it. It is in his possession. And what we want to see this morning is, is what does this have to say to you and to me today? This one who has the sword, obviously he's holding it, what does it mean? How do we relate to it? How does the 21st century fits into this text? The sword in ancient time was a symbol of power and authority. It was something that was used for war. But there were other reasons for having a sword, and I want to speak very briefly on the physical symbol. It is symbolizing something. It is saying that this thing is what you have before you, but it has something more than what you are seeing. 
by reading it. It, it has this, this negative symbol. The sword was used to destroy. It was used to inflict pain. As we have seen in our time, ISIS uses the sword very effectively because what ISIS does is to use the sword to behead innocent people. So the sword has a negative concept attached to it. Peter used the sword negatively when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter took his sword and he used it to cut off the ear of a soldier. And on and on, it can be used to move things. In Psalm 149 and verse 6, it is called the two-edged sword that God is going to use for judgment. So in a physical sense, the sword has the idea of inflicting pain, of exercising absolute authority, and to do some very terrible things with its usage. But then there's a positive use for the sword, a very positive use. And it is seen useful positively from Romans chapter 13, where the sword is seen as the governmental responsibility to deal with injustice in a society. The apostle said, the government is to use the sword to make sure that justice is done. And I'm not talking about justice in the way we think of justice today. I'm thinking of justice in the sense of celebrating what is right and punishing what is wrong. And Paul said in Romans chapter 13, the government does not hold the sword in vain. It is to be exercised. In Roman culture, the sword was a symbol of power and authority. And whoever held power as Caesar did, wielded the sword as he pleased. So here we have this symbol given in the scriptures of a sword. Jesus is speaking to the church. And he's telling them that he has the sword. So what's the scriptural our spiritual symbol of the sword. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, and in Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, Paul said, the sword is the word of God. And just as the sword physically can be used negatively and spiritually, or positively, positively so the sword of the scriptures are used in that, uh, is used in that way. God called, the, 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 in Ephesians 6, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that which is wielded by the Spirit through the church is the Scriptures. It is a weapon. It is a weapon so powerful that when Jesus was praying, in John 17, he prayed, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. We live in a day when truth is up for grabs. We live in a day when truth 
is on the scaffold. And things are changing. What used to be true yesterday is no longer true today. It is fluid. It can change with time. And Jesus is telling us something when we find out how the sword exists as far as the church was concerned. You will see in a moment that the church in Pergamum was facing some deep, difficult, destructive issues, even to the place of death. And Jesus wants to speak to this church. And he didn't speak to the church politically. He didn't speak to the church morally. He didn't speak to the church psychologically. He spoke to the church spiritually. He's holding in his hand a sharp two-edged sword. And that sharp two-edged sword scripturally is the word of God. Thy word is truth. So truth is that which God uses in time to speak to the church. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't need to tell you what's happening today. Listen to this sword. As it is described in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Any philosophy that can be brought, any physical, psychological, moral expression that can be brought to deal with the issues of time cannot be compared with the word of God. It is sharper than that. It goes way beyond that. It can do what no other sword can do. A sword can can behead someone as ISIS does. But this sword goes into the human heart and divides between the soul and the spirit. No other sword has that capacity. This is what Jesus is holding out to the church in the time of its challenges. In the communion he says, remember me. And you remember him through his words. Thy word, he said, is truth. So when Jesus faced his deepest, deepest temptation, if you please, he answered it by saying, it is written. Jesus had absolute confidence in the written word. The word that was spoken, he presented that to the church in Pergamum. And he presents that to the church in Sodaville. And he presents that to the church in Albany. And he presents that to the church in Salem. And he presents that to the church in New York. And in California. And in Seattle. Wherever the church is. The same means by which God responds to cultural challenges is through his word. That's the only truth. 
Let's look at the sword of the Lord. It was a symbol of the sword. We saw it's physical and it's spiritual. Now let's look at the look at the text. Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum. And he said to the to the messenger, He who holds the sword in, fur, in his hands. If you look in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, and a sharp sword, two-edged sword, came out of his mouth. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. So in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, the word came out of his mouth and the word became a written word. So we read in John chapter 1, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was the expression of the Father has come into our world. Look if you please. The word is eternal. It was in his mouth. It was not something that Jesus made up when he came to earth. The mind of God which is expressed in the word of God existed before there was time. And that word existed in pure wisdom. With authority. So that in the beginning in Genesis, God spoke and the authority of God was such that when God said, let there be, there was. <laughs> he didn't have to speak a second time. Because God never speaks to ask for permission. He speaks to command. And out of his mouth, this word is eternal forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. Forever it stands. And if the world should be 10 million years old, as some say, or if it should be 5 million years old, God's word is always contemporary. It never has to move up to catch up to the times because the word of God is the perpetual contemporary thing that we have with which to deal with the world. It was in his mouth. F.F. F. Bruce says this. It is a living, effective, and self-fulfilling word. It diagnoses the conviction of the human heart. When Jesus again was praying, he said, Thy word is truth. Truth deals with reality. Truth deals with things as they are. Truth does not conform to, to man's experience of things. I understand that uh, some pop star was supposed to have to, to 
how about performance? And uh, I think it was in New York. And something went on the internet or Facebook, whichever one, saying that this pop star was going to have a performance downtown New York. This was just a few weeks ago. People gathered, hundreds, thousands of people gathered downtown New York, waiting for this pop star to show up. He didn't. He didn't. See, people took his word as truth. They said if he said it, it certainly has to be that way. But it wasn't. And my friends, we're dealing with all kinds of issues in our time. That's telling us that truth that used to be yesterday's truth is not today's truth. See, when Jesus spoke centuries ago, he didn't speak hoping that his word would catch up to time. He spoke because his word was truth and time would have to catch up to that word. It was an eternal word. And if you and I live in this time and we see things changing and you look in the ancient book and you ask yourself, can I trust this book that was written over 3,000 years ago to meet the demands of a technological age? Yes. Because technology cannot meet the needs of the soul. Technology can only meet what technology is created for. <laughs> Some years ago, the world best chess player, IBM developed a machine that would challenge the world best player in chess. And Boris didn't want to be beaten by a machine. So he went into hiding <laughs> and he spent long hours developing plays and seeing how he could make sure that if the machine moved this, he would move this way. He said, I didn't want my dignity to be destroyed by a machine. One professor wrote, how ironic, even if the machine won, the machine had no feelings, couldn't say, aha, got ya. The machine couldn't say, let's go celebrate. See, a machine cannot do what the human heart needs to do. So, my friends, there might be things happening. There might be changes that are taking place in our time with all kinds of, of, of precious issues to us. God's word says this is the way it ought to be. Oh, this is the way it is. And we can say, I think it should be another way. May I just say it from the words of my mother? Right is right, no matter how few believe it. And wrong is wrong, no matter how many believe it. <laughs> it was an eternal word. That's why, my friends, I am, I am sold out to this book. This is not my opinion being shared with you this morning. I believe with all my heart. That's the reason I, I spent time 
in preparing, coming to you, so that when you walk out of this place this morning, you will leave this place with a conviction that God has spoken through a man. That God was not speaking to you standing up in person. <laughs> to the angel, him who holds the sword. The word was eternal. Secondly, the word was expressed. Jesus in John 17, 8 says, Father, the words you have given me, I have given to them. The words you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus said, I did not come giving you an opinion of eternity and time and the hearts of men when I came. It was decided in heaven long before I came that God will speak to the fallen human race. And he will speak through his word. The word that became flesh. The personal word and the written word. And Jesus said, the words you gave me, listen now. I have given to the men you have given me. And then in John 14, uh, 27, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will take the things that I have told you and he will make them plain to you. Please notice what this is happening. The word came from God. Jesus brought the word into human history, gave it to the disciples. The disciples now are keeping the word to our time by the Holy Spirit who is making sure that the word remains what the word has always been. The reason people say, isn't that a book written by man? Yes, it is. But I'm going to tell you what kind of man wrote the book. Men who were carried by the Holy Spirit so that they are not able to make mistake or write what they want to write. God used human vessels controlled by the Spirit so that when Matthew wrote, when John wrote, when Jeremiah wrote, even though they lived in space-time, they were reflecting eternal things. Ladies and gentlemen, they were expressing the mind of God, the thoughts of God. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are not my words simply. They are the words of the eternal God. This word cannot be broken. It is settled. Did Moses know what he was writing about? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says they were writing things that they did not understand. That's because they were writing under the control of the Holy Spirit, the true mind of God. When Jesus said that our hearts are evil, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. The word was expressed. The Spirit preserves the integrity of what was given from heaven to the apostles so that Jesus can say, when you speak when I am gone, you will speak what I spoke, what God gave. We'll take some more of this when we continue our studies in the fall in Colossians. <coughs> Lastly, let's look at the significance of the word then. This is where we come to our text. Listen, if you please, to the text. Verse 13, I know, that's Revelation 2, 13. 
I know where you are, where Satan's throne is. That's where the church is, friends. Not talking about Satan's physical being, but talking about Satan's control. Pergamum was a very interesting city. It had one of the greatest libraries at the time, some 200,000 volumes in it, was second only to the library in Egypt. Pergamon had a medical center, the symbol which we still use today. We use the snake to emphasize medicine. That's where it came from, from Pergamon. Pergamon was a place that was the first in human history to designate a human being as God. Caesar is God. In preparation, Antipas, Antipas did not believe that. He said, I'm going to be faithful to God no matter what. And someone, it is said, went to Antipas just before he was murdered for believing God's word and, and said, Antipas, do you know that the whole world is against you? You know how he responded? He responded by saying, then I am against the whole world. <laughs> Do you know that the whole world, my friends, we are living in a time when the whole nation is against us. But please listen to Jesus. It is not about you and me. It's about him. The words that I speak to you, said Jesus, their spirit and their life. That's not my words. What's the significance then? They were being challenged. Satan was bringing all kinds of foreign teaching, influencing the church. And, and, and the church in Pergamos became susceptible to the teaching of several foreign doctrines, namely one of them, the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam who was being induced by Balak to curse the people of God, when Balaam realized he couldn't do it, he suggested a way to do it, compromise. Compromise. Bring the, make the word of God relevant so that it will say what the culture is saying, so the culture will respond to us. And God says, no, no. My word is not given to speak, please listen, my word is not given to speak to the culture, my word is given to speak to the church, to the church. He didn't say, didn't say, write this and speak to your political leader. You know, Tuesday morning, Franklin Graham is going to be in Salem. He's going to be at the Capitol building. And hundreds and thousands of people will gather. And I, I, I do not decry that at all. But listen, ladies and gentlemen, may I suggest to you, please listen to me and listen to me carefully. Franklin Graham, with all my respect for him, cannot change the White House's mind. Cannot change... Governor Brown's mind. It's okay for us to meet, but we have to understand, all, if, if we're meeting,
to have a public witness that we believe God, it's one thing. If we're meeting thinking that the number that meet will speak to the nations, we're in trouble. God speaks to his church first. And he changes the church and he removes the darkness. And he, and he says everything that is happening in the world, and I can show this to you, everything that is happening in the world is because the church has lost its sense of who God is, what God's word says. And when you begin to adjust the word of God to meet the culture's mood, you have nothing to say to the culture. You can't speak to it. The church must be a contrast as light is from darkness. So is the word of God. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so, my friends, as we live in the 21st century, when we're being confronted by this great demand that truth is relative, that truth is personal, that truth can be discovered, the Bible says no, truth is revealed. And you and I have the privilege of having it in our possession this morning. When at the year 2000, when all the computers were supposed to go berserk, and who knows what was going to happen, Time magazine published what is known as one of their premier publications. Beyond the year 2000, beyond the year 2000, or what is to be expected in the next millennium? The writers of time and the sociologists met together. I'll give you three things they said would happen. This is back in the year 2000. The first thing they said that would happen as we go into the next millennium is child abuse. Number one, child abuse. Watching the news from Toronto the other day, a mother, a grandmother at one point, guilty of murdering their children, grandchildren. Child abuse. If you look in your bulletins this morning, you will see a prayer for Pam Dukert. Pam, I'm trying to think of her last name. You'll find it in your bulletin on the missions. She is right now in... in South Korea, where she's working as a young lady, single young lady, trying to deal with human trafficking. Children being used as pawns for the lust of depraved men and women, may I say. That's number one. <laughs> I almost wondered if I should have taken this one. The next thing that they said, 2000, that would be a very definite change in culture is the feminization of culture. The feminization of culture. I don't even know if I should even deal with that more. The third thing. Is sexual exploration. This was back in 2000. Listen to what it says. This is what they wrote. Pediatricians will begin to teach sexuality to children at the same time they get their vaccinations. That's happening, friends, right now. 
There are hundreds of parents in Toronto right now saying they're going to keep their children out of school because in kindergarten, they're teaching them about gender differences in kindergarten. But by the time they become teenagers, it'll be a normal thing. And the only, the only wall that we will have to build against it is teaching our children the scriptures in our homes. That's where it will happen. I said there were only three. I had one more and then I, I close. Atheism. Atheism. Not that atheism doesn't exist in 2000, but my friends, atheism was not as strident then as it is now. Atheism has, has come out of the closet, if you please. It is out there. And God is not only not believed in, he's told he's not wanted. I can, you have heard me talk about that. This is what Jesus said to the church that was facing all those things. He holds in his hand the sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And this sword is going to speak to the culture. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Not that you shouldn't do it. I always find it very interesting when I go into some places and they say, thank you for not smoking. And I keep saying, well, what if I don't want your thanks? <laughs> Instead of saying, no smoking. No, thank you for not smoking. There are some things, my friends, that are wrong. There are some things that are evil. There are some things that are dark. And no matter which way we cut it, it won't change. Because a leopard cannot change its spots. But then this word that speaks negatively, like the sword, also speaks positively. This is what God says will correct it. This is what God says will answer to it. This is what, as the sword becomes a defensive weapon, the sword will keep the error from penetrating so that the teaching of Balaam will not enter the church where we begin to compromise with things and say that right is wrong and wrong is right. That's the significance of this word from Revelation chapter 2. That in the church that was facing changing times and the demolition of age-old things that have stood the test of time, Antipas said, if it cost me my life, I will never give to Caesar what belongs to God. And may Sodaville Church never give to Caesar what belongs to God. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word, not my opinion. And when Jesus was leaving, when he instituted the communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he was already in hev heaven when he spoke to Pergamon. He continues to speak through his word today because forever your word is established. And may this congregation here in Sodaville, like Antipas, be faithful to the very end. And if it means, Lord, that for your word, we will have to be arrested, not that we put ourselves in a position to, but faithfulness to God, we want to say like Peter, you answer the question, is it better to obey God or man? May the answer be obvious for us that we would be faithful to God to the very end.
In Jesus' name, amen.